Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to Barry Ferguson about his history of perhaps the most famous Royal Commission in Canadian history. Appropriately entitled The Rowell Sirois Commission and the Remaking of Canadian Federalism, and co authored with Robert Wardoff, this book was published by UBC Press in 2021. Barry Ferguson is recently retired from the Department of History at the University of Manitoba. He is a political and intellectual historian who has specialized in provincial politics, liberalism, and federalism. I had the pleasure of working with him years ago when he co-edited, again with Robert Wardoff, a major volume entitled Manitoba Premiers of the 19th and 20th Centuries. Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, Barry, first question out of the chute is, was the Rowell Sirwa Commission the most significant royal commission in Canada's history? Uh, that would be a strong claim, but it was a very important one. Um, important because it uh, did a two things. There were previous commissions that were very rich uh, into so-called Oriental immigration and Chinese and Japanese immigration that extensively interviewed people. Um, Royal Commission on Capital and Labor interviewed people. The innovation, I think, was uh, in addition to the interviews, uh, the, the very extensive research that was undertaken, drawing on a huge amount of uh, what was then, well, obviously recent social science. So it combined two approaches, and that was unique and set the pattern for subsequent commissions up to today. And do you think it's, in terms of its substantive influence in the subject matter, one of Canada's most important royal commissions? I think that could be argued. Um, again, it, it it's on the most uh, quintessential not necessarily exciting, but important Canadian topic. It's, it was at the centre of no less than two Dominion Provincial Conferences, as they were called, and was really for 40 or 50 years continually referred to um, as people tried to figure out how to make the federal system work properly. Now, I know that both you and your co-author have been working on and off on the history of federalism, including this commission, for many, many years. This feels like the culmination of much of that work. Do I have that right? In other words, what's the backstory to this particular book? I think, that, I think you do have it right. On one hand, um, Robert Warthoff has, has been continually interested in the role of region, particularly the Prairie West in, the, in Canadian Confederation. And then he worked on uh, leading deputy minister, uh, Clifford Clark, who was a deputy minister of finance for many years. Uh, my own work has been a little bit more abstract on the level of political ideas, um, as well as provincial government and provincial politics with the Manitoba work. Um, so each of us came at this trying to figure out the nature of the Canadian state, federalism, um, and the extent to which liberal democracy in Canada actually worked or didn't. Now, as you know, 
Yeah, and on that, the it just seems to me that you both of you have actually published on uh, this royal commission in the past in article format, uh, and the combination of both ideas and the intellectual history as well as the the role of the West in terms of the description of the three prairie provinces in British Columbia and their situation, particularly the three prairie provinces during the Great Depression. It struck me that this was uh, a very excellent partnership in terms of the kind of uh, resources that you would need to be able to understand this. And on that, you both reviewed multiple primary sources. Uh, and as you know, the Champlain Society is all about uh, the preservation, dissemination of documentary history in Canada. And your book is grounded in a variety of primary sources. Uh, can you briefly describe the most important of these documentary sources and um, and, it, and to some extent, what I see is that there was a division of your intellectual uh, uh, backgrounds in terms of, of that research. Well, I think we, yeah, I mean, certainly Robert brings to bear a real focus on uh, the, the nitty gritty of politics and to an extent government operations. And I have do have, as you say, more abstruse interests in ideas. But what actually kicked us off on the whole topic uh, a mere 20 years ago to work on a couple of articles was uh, we were alerted to some new papers that added to the John Dayfoe collection, which, you know, is hoary with age, very voluminous. And when we looked at this new collection of papers, um, we found that there was a different John Dayfoe. Um, he wasn't... Uh, well, he's well known as a champion of strong central government, Canadian autonomy and all that. Um, he was by no means obsessed with a strong federal government. Um, and one could never describe him as a social democrat, <laughs> let alone a socialist interventionist. But he was also very committed to, uh, to, to effective government intervention. That, that reading of those sources then led, led us to others, um, the Defoe papers. Um, a selection of what I suspect might be a larger collection of papers by a guy called Robert Mackay, or McKay, who is one of the commissioners. Um, of course, the Mackenzie King papers, which are, as you know, the epitome of voluminous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, going back to John Defoe, though, just describe to our listeners uh, who he was and, and his uh, role before... Uh, he became a member of the commission. Well, Defoe was the editor of the leading newspaper in the West, the Winnipeg, the Manitoba, then after, I think, 1932, the Winnipeg Free Press, which was liberal and reformist. Um, mm -hmm. Defoe was by no means uh, all his life a, a particularly generous-minded man. He was uh, at times very anti-radical, anti um, he was, uh, as we would politely say, um, a bit of a nativist against Europeans, uh, European immigrants in Canada. He did change his tune by the 20s and 30s, I think. Um, but the, and the Winnipeg Free Press was preeminently concerned about what it saw as a kind of raw deal for the prairie provinces at the hand of Canada and also the big corporations, i.e. 
the Canadian Pacific Railway. Well, I want to ask you how the Royal Sirwa Commission came into being, uh, and in particular, why did Premier Bracken of Manitoba push so hard for this commission? And sort of the influence of outside interests and provincial governments in the creation of the commission. Once the depression really bit, there was a series of first ministers' conferences. And uh, by 1932, 1933, it was clear that all they were going to get out of Bennett, the pre prime minister, R.B. Bennett, was a series of harangues, um, some loans that were going to just accrue to their long-term debt, and nothing particularly changing. Of all people, it was the premier of Quebec who suggested that it, perhaps a royal commission or a commission of inquiry into Dominion provincial relations would be necessary. And then, of course, Bracken, who is nothing if not tenacious, took up the call. And Manitoba simply had grown so fed up with uh, never being able to get the revenues to pay off its debt let alone in any way expand its very limited state role in any case, took up the cudgel and fought. And once the Liberals came to power in 1935, of course, Mackenzie King, who um, was capable of knowing how to kick problems down the road, uh, eventually came up with a proposal, uh, admitted the proposal for a, a commission of inquiry would be a great idea which occurred in 1937, although it took them six months at the federal cabinet level to go from okaying the creation of a commission to actually forming it. Right. And, and who were the main individuals that were appointed to the commission? And I know there were pretty significant changes over time for, because of ill health and that sort of thing. Um, so who were the main individuals? And you describe this at length in the book, but the politics of representation in terms of those individuals that seem to dog the commission from the beginning. Well, of course, it's a classic Canadian case. You have to have representation from the, the great interests, and that means, meant in those days, as it does today, start with Ontario and Quebec. Um, so there was uh, the the selection focused on, and there was a great, great deal of interaction within cabinet and between cabinet and the senior civil servants uh, over who would best fit the bill. It turned out Newton Roll, the former Ontario Liberal leader, former union government cabinet minister, and then recent and great corporation lawyer, um, was the preferred first candidate. Um, Quebec was a dicier situation. They ended up with uh, Thibodeau Rinfray, who was uh, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, but a good liberal and equally as important, um, well aligned with Quebec, the provincial government of Quebec. Ironically enough, Roll was not well aligned with the liberals in Ontario, led by Mitch Hepburn. They were totally opposite types. So then you go, one more person. Well, we have to get someone from the West, and the West meant the prairies mostly. Defoe was an obvious choice. And I, but I know, I, I note that the commission was never ever uh, called because these commissions always take the title off the main commissioners. Defoe was never included in the naming uh, informally of that. No, uh, he wasn't the chair. Roll was the chair. Right. Um, then Rinfrey promptly became ill 
and resigned before the commission actually started any of its substantive work, and was replaced by Joseph Sirois, a Quebec City notary and great friend of Louis Saint Laurent, who probably would have been appointed to the commission, except he was making far too much money and was far more interested in the practice of law in Quebec and Canada. So Saint Laurent supported uh, his friend Sirois, who eventually, when Roll became terribly ill within a year of the commission's uh, commencement, and Sirois became the chair of the commission with Defoe as the sort of third heavyweight. But then into all of this, the government of the day, the King government decided, oh my God, we better have representation from the nether regions, British Columbia and the Maritimes. And through their usual bizarre alchemy, they thought, well, well, look, they've got these two professors that a lot of people think highly of, Robert McKay at Dalhousie and Henry Angus at UBC, and they could be the junior commissioners. I mean, Mackenzie King said, quite frankly, in his, to himself in his diary, well, they're 20 years younger than the other guys. They'll do most of the work, and right. <laughs> they may actually survive to keep the commission ideas going in the future. Uh, Mackenzie King was not a sentimentalist when he wrote in his diary. Now, one of the, the, the most fascinating aspects of the book is your, the time that you spend and, uh, on the provincial governments and their relationship with the commission. In particular, the decision by some governments not to cooperate or at least fully cooperate with the commission. Why this antagonism to the commission? And did this antagonism make any difference in terms of the final report and its recommendations? Well, of course, it made a difference to the operations of the commission. Um, and I'll answer your second question first, because I think it's relatively straightforward. Uh, it did not affect the commissioners at all in, in, and their associates in writing their reports. Um, they were quite capable of uh, staying clear of the politics, although they were well aware of it. It was entirely political. All the provinces wanted the Royal Commission. It was a Quebec suggestion, albeit a liberal Quebec government that suggested it. Um, when the commission was called, Mackenzie King, Mr. Cautious, consulted with all the premiers. They were all on side. Um, and then within months, three of them, Hepburn in Ontario, Duplessis, who'd come on to the scene in Quebec, and William Aberhart in Alberta then totally reneged on their initial commitment, in some, in some ways understandably in the case of Alberta, which was beaten to a pulp by the government of Canada over uh, constitutional jurisdiction, legislative jurisdiction. That's right. And so you can understand Alberta and Aberhart's position because he felt like he'd been very much abused by the King government. But what about Mitch Hepburn? What was going on there? He was a liberal after all. He was not a Mackenzie King liberal, as he famously announced um, <laughs> during the workings of the Royal Commission. Uh, their regard for King, uh, what they saw as uh, both Hepburn and Duplessis as federal efforts to intrude upon provincial areas of jurisdiction um, led them to want to up unseat Mackenzie King. and. The, I think the bottom line was that they wanted to do anything they could to um, besmirch, if not actually destroy Mackenzie King. And they were happy to try to use 
their sort of withdrawal of support for the Royal Commission to that end. Now, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And so, uh, but the hearings themselves make for fascinating reading. The, the commission had a private railway car, uh, which initially the government of Canada did not want to, to give them, but uh, Mackenzie King uh, eventually relented. Um, and they used it to work uh, and rest while traveling to the various provincial capitals while they were consulting with the provincial governments. But the reception they received varied widely as did the quality of the representations, the, the presentations, and the written submissions. Can you give us a, a flavor of this by describing some of the very best provincial submissions and presentations and comparing them to the very worst of the provincial uh, presentations and submissions? Easy enough to answer. Um, the four Western provinces and Nova Scotia had excellent presentations. In the case of the Western provinces, they were written by combinations of civil servants, high-ranking high civil servants and consultants. Even Alberta, which ultimately didn't refuse to submit its uh, report, had a, had a report completed by a couple of agricultural economists at the University of Minnesota who um, were right in line with BC, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba in stating the, whole, the problems of uh, federal provincial relations was that the provinces had to pay for all of the developments that the national policy had implemented and they lacked the fiscal resources to do so. Nova Scotia came to the same conclusion. Apparently its report was chiefly written by Angus MacDonald, the premier of the province, in consultation with several civil servants. Uh, Ontario's wasn't bad. Um, New Brunswick okay, PEI okay, but the absolute worst was obviously Quebec, which submitted a seven-page report denying that it had to submit a report. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it basically wasn't recognizing the legitimacy of the commission. And that really, that really scared the federal government because, uh, um, you know, without raising a sort of separatist bogey, it was clear that Quebec could really go off the rails and the whole confederation enterprise um, Canada's role as a country, Canada's place in the world, would be ruined. So the stakes were high, never mind for the poor Royal Commission, which managed well, to avoid it all. Well, further on that, what was Duplessis' major concern about the Commission? Why did he find it so uh, either threatening or uh, illegitimate? Well, I think, first of all, he didn't feel that he had been consulted um, appropriately. Um, I, it's really Quebec felt that there was, as I can understand it, Quebec had a system of social services. It had an educational system. They were Catholic, confessional, um, not pri predominantly state-run, and uh, Quebec was quite wary that um, any recommendations of a royal commission headed by an Ontario liberal and with a bunch of um, social scientists in the background was going to be going to severely threaten Quebec's approach to social services and approach to the state. Um, whether, you know, nowadays we, we English Canadians have all learned that Quebec was in the, the la grande no, no, noirceur, 
the great blackness. Um, and certainly Quebec was not a model liberal democracy, but Quebec had a system of, of healthcare, welfare, and education. And you know, we, we may not all think that it was the best system, but it was their system. And in a word, Duplessis wanted to defend that. Now, one of Mackenzie King's closest bureaucratic advisors was O.D. Skelton, and his son, Sandy Skelton, uh, became the director of research, de facto, of the commission. Uh, and this seemed like a mercurial person to be in charge of such an important aspect of the commission's working. Uh, and it, it, what comes out in the book is that he was quite undependable in some ways in terms of getting the needed research material and reports done on time. Uh, he drove, in fact, some of the commissioners crazy with his broken promises on delivery. What is your assessment of his role in the commission? Skelton was, um, and, and the staff around him were vital, but they were partners with the royal commissioners who were not the creatures of the staff, as one gets a sense in some later commissions, not all, obviously, but uh, some, some later commissions. The commissioners had ideas. They were capable of uh, reading research materials and indeed analyzing and assessing them. So um, what Skelton did, though, was, was assemble this team of researchers. But you know, in his defense, he had, to cons he had to farm out a lot of the research to academics, um, who, as you know, are not always reliable in following instructions or getting their work done on time. Uh, no doubt some of us are worse than others. But uh, <laughs> um, so on, the, on that ground, he was, you know, he was dependent upon others. He, uh, he, was, he was difficult. He was uh, apparently a man prone to emotional excesses. Um, it would seem clear that he had a drinking problem. And uh, from time to time, went off. When things went badly with the commission, he would disappear for a week or two or three. Um, the amazing thing is he was tolerated. Um, I don't know if people would be so tolerated today in modern bureaucracies. One thing about him, though, I have to say, he was, he was an advanced economic thinker himself. He was well-trained in contemporary economics in the 1920s and 30s. He was not doctrinaire. When, when I first did some work in the Bank of Canada archives, there were some memos from Skelton that were basically the initial response of Skelton to the fiscal crisis of the Western provinces was like, was like that of his boss, Graham Towers, the governor of the bank. They're bankrupt, we'll put them in receivership and run the provinces. And I thought, oh my God, this will be interesting. Within, within a few memos, Skelton was saying quite the opposite, and he spent the rest of his time, and indeed for the years after the commission reported, um, in very careful and respectful consultation with the provinces. So he had, a, he had a really capacious mind, analytically, despite his flaws. Well, it seemed that his flaws at least was partly responsible for the commission's bad timing in the coming out with a report in 1940 rather than 1939, when I think the commission had hoped to come out with the report. And 1940, as you know, is in the midst of the, the war, and uh, this was 
uh, not the greatest timing in terms of uh, the government being able to listen to the report and it being received by uh, the provincial governments and the general public in Canada. To what extent was this skeleton's fault, and to what extent was it, it was it inevitable that they were going to report that late? Well, I have no evidence for the following statement, but I think that, well, Skelton could be assigned some blame for delays from time to time, and possibly the report could have been done more quickly. But they really, they really fell into line with the agenda of the government of Canada. It would have been convenient to have had the report in the spring of 1939. Well, they blew past that deadline, and um, in the end, the government was quite content with it. And then in late 1939 and early 1940, well, circumstances got in the way of it. So when the report was supposed to be absolutely finished by mid-January 1940, and Skelton had his most spectacular blow-up, which involved him having to go on a two- or three-week holiday with his father to Cuba and Mexico with the report yes. unfinished. Um, that was fine with Mackenzie King and company because they called an election. So let the report right. get buried. Now, did this affect the impact of the report? Well, when you get a whole Dominion Provincial Conference on your report, I'd say you had a pretty big impact regardless of the war. Right, right. So the timing wasn't, uh, you know, so detrimental to the commission in some respects. So my defense of my position um, is that, you know, ultimately, as you know, commissions of inquiry are bureaucratic agencies, the creatures of governments. Um, they are, they serve at the at the pleasure of the government, and they do the bidding of the government, and that commission was like that as well. They were not about to uh, fly in the face of the convenience of the government that appointed them. Now you begin your chapter on the aftermath of the Royal Sirois Commission by quoting political scientist David E. Smith, and I quote, whether or not governments use the information provided or follow the proposals that are made is unimportant from the perspective of the Royal Commission as an instrument of executive choice. For the government of the day, the Royal Commission is a valuable tool of public policy. It not only defines issues, it authenticates those that are chosen for investigation over those that are ignored. What exactly did Smith mean by this, and how does this quotation apply to Roel Sirois? Well, I can, I'm not sure I can speak to Professor Smith's uh, specific understanding or intentions. Um, I, can, I can only say what we saw as his meaning there, which is that the you know, commissions of inquiry um, follow their lead within the terms of reference, um, and once the report is written, and once it's made public, it's there f to be discussed and analyzed. Right. It's advisory. In this case, it had a life of its own. Um, mm -hmm. The commissioners you know, were certainly, Defoe used the full weight of the free press and the Sifton organization in Western Canada to um, push the commission and, and 
and and, and promote it. But uh, that was not all that great a great a form of um, promotion. The other commissioners simply went well. One of them, poor Sirwa, died within weeks of the uh, Dominion Provincial days of the Dominion Provincial Conference that more or less put the commission on hold for the duration of the war. But, you know, the commission report had a life of its own and it went on for years and indeed decades. I think that may be what uh, Professor Smith is thinking about. It's not the right. direct impact, but the indirect impact. If, if you go for exactly. a direct impact, com commissions often end up squibs. What is the most important or enduring legacy of the Royal Sirwa Commission, in your view? To me, the, the recognition that provincial governments were, however one puts it, equal partners, equally legitimate partners in the government of Canada. They required more than adequate access to revenues, and then the specific recommendation that um, the transfer of revenues to the provinces using the federal tax system should be unconditional was the crucial one. Unfortunately, not particularly honored in subsequent decades. But recognizing that the provinces in their areas had a, had a crucial role and that they needed the revenues to do so, but that the federal government was also obviously important in distributing the money Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Barry. We really appreciate it. And uh, I really recommend this book to anyone who's interested in either federalism or the machinery of government. This was a fascinating read. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for interviewing me, Greg. My guest today was Barry Ferguson. His book, The Rowell Sirois Commission and the Remaking of Canadian Federalism, co-authored with Robert Wardoff, was published by the University of British Columbia Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was conducted on September 7th, 2021. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.